On the day of January 6, former President Donald Trump held a rally just south of the White House where he urged his supporters to march on the Capitol just as Congress was preparing to certify the results of November's presidential election. We will stop the steal. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. As a crowd of thousands of people made their way down Pennsylvania Avenue, inside the Capitol building, a joint session of Congress was being gaveled in to formally count the votes of the Electoral College. Madam Speaker, the Vice President, and the United States Senate. In normal times, the counting of the Electoral College votes is a largely ceremonial procedure. But as we know, January 6th was not normal times. Based on a lie that the election was stolen and Congress could somehow simply not certify the Electoral College votes and declare Trump the winner, many of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were doing so because they were given bad information. The Constitution says you have to protect our country and you have to protect our Constitution. When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. In the weeks and months since the attack on the Capitol, one thing people on both sides of the political spectrum seem to agree on is that social media and big technology companies bear at least some responsibility for spreading the lies that led to the events of January 6th. But is that true? And if it is true, even a little bit, what should we do about it? Those questions, dear listeners, are precisely what we're going to try to unpack in this new series we're calling Unchecked, a months-long investigation from the Bloomberg Industry Group into the rise of the modern internet and how platforms once dominated by food tweets and cat videos are also feeding outrage, deepening political divisions, and enabling disinformation on a massive scale. Stay tuned. So to start at the beginning, what many people consider to be the birth of the modern internet, we have to go back to 1996, which either seems like forever ago or not really that far back. I was a college freshman in 1996, so to me, sadly, it doesn't seem that long ago. But with me to talk about these early days of the internet is Gigi Sohn. Gigi is a fellow at the Georgetown Law Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy, She also worked at the FCC during the second Obama administration. So, Gigi, before we get into some of the concerns you and others have about big tech, could you just start by explaining what separates social media companies apart from traditional media in terms of their business model? Well, what sets social media platforms apart from, let's say, broadcasting or cable is that while they all depend on advertising, the advertising that social media companies depend on is targeted. So essentially, your browser, your social media platform collects an unbelievable amount of information about you, Uh, whether it's demographic information, where you live, what your race is, what your age is. It also collects data about where you go on the web, right? So I buy a lot of athletic wear, right, now that we're in COVID-19. And so I do a lot of shopping for that online. And then I go to my, I go to Facebook and all of a sudden I get delivered dozens of ads for other companies 
that sell athletic wear. So, you know, a lot of data is, is gathered about you, sold to advertising networks, uh, and then they deliver the ads to you. So that's targeted advertising, advertising that advertisers believe, again, based on a lot of data, that you want to see. As opposed to legacy media, which just broadcasts what they think the most general audience would be interested in, cars, Doritos, you know, other consumer goods like that. But the thing that actually made it possible for companies like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube to exist and grow was something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was passed into law in 1996. So what problem was Section 230 designed to fix? The reason Section 230 even came to be was because there were two lower court decisions that held two opposite things. Okay, one involved uh, an old online platform called CompuServe. CompuServe combines the power of your computer with the convenience of your telephone to bring you hundreds of online services, like a complete set of encyclopedias. For those of you who don't remember the 1990s, CompuServe was one of the earliest internet service providers. It also hosted several online forums, as well as a third-party newsletter called Rumorville USA. So in 1990, Rumorville published some disparaging remarks about a rival newsletter, and this is perfect, called Scuttlebutt, which was owned by Cubby Incorporated. In addition to suing Rumorville, Cubby also sued CompuServe, alleging that as publisher, CompuServe was also liable for the statements of its authors. And the court in the CompuServe case, it was called Cubby versus CompuServe, said that a third-party post on CompuServe did not make CompuServe liable. Uh, So in other words, because CompuServe didn't moderate content on its platform, it could not be sued for libel. That is, since CompuServe was merely a distributor of the defamatory statements, it wasn't responsible. Got it? So what was the other case? And the other uh, involved an old online platform called Prodigy. The name of the case was Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. Stratton Oakmont, as some listeners may recall, was the subject of the Martin Scorsese film Wolf of Wall Street, where Leonardo DiCaprio played Stratton's pill-popping CEO, Jordan Belfort. I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every time. But, unlike CompuServe... Prodigy was held liable because it had taken a small editorial role in deciding, you know, what content got on its platform or not. So it was these two decisions that were completely at odds with each other that caused two members of Congress, then Representative Christopher Cox from California, and then Representative and now Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon to say, look, if we're going to have an internet that flourishes where everybody can speak, We need to fix this. And that's where Section 230 came in. Now, Section 230 does two things. And people generally only focus on the first. So let me talk about the first. The first part of Section 230 that everybody kind of knows about is what I'd call the shield. And that says that if you are an online content platform, whether you're a company or an individual blogger, or a nonprofit like Wikimedia, you cannot be held liable for the content that somebody else posts. All right, so long as you're not writing it yourself and you know, if somebody else posts a comment, I thought that Thai restaurant stunk, 
Yelp cannot be, be sued for defamation, right? So that's the shield. But Section 230 also has a sword, and that's the part that often gets kind of lost in the sauce. And the sword allows those very same platforms to remove or otherwise limit access to content that they deem lewd, lascivious, obscene, filthy, excessively violent, or otherwise objectionable. And also, if somebody posts something objectionable, even though there's not a mandate to take it down, the implication is you should take it down. Of course, these days, this issue of what social media platforms leave up or take down is extremely divisive. And historically, the position of most of these tech companies was very hands-off in terms of content moderation. You know, outside of a few things like nudity or obvious criminal activity, these platforms tended to talk about themselves in terms of these noble ideas about free speech and democracy or the role they played in the Me Too movement. So given what we see today with things like online conspiracy theories or hyper-partisan rhetoric, Gigi, do you think those liability protections that were conceived under Section 230 still serve a positive function? I think that these companies can no longer say, I'm just going to use the shield and not the sword. You know, here's the problem, okay? There's a lot of focus on Section 230 and not nearly enough focus on how big and powerful these companies are and how they control the public discourse, right? So, you know, they control in a lot of ways uh, online, the online economy. Uh, They control the public discourse. And they use their bigness and their power to control these things in a way that is not necessarily good for consumers, good for competitors, or good for democracy. So, you know, my thought is you can't use the shield unless you also use the sword, particularly become, because these companies have become so incredibly powerful and become almost the only place to, you know, to have a worldwide conversation about just about anything. Gigi Sohn is a fellow at the Georgetown Law Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. She's also host of her own podcast called Tech on the Rocks. So even before companies like Facebook and Twitter came into existence, one of the first legal tests of Section 230 came almost immediately. It's a case involving a guy named Ken Zarin, who's um, a filmmaker in Seattle, And he starts getting a bunch of phone calls, uh, really angry phone calls, some death threats, and he doesn't know why. Jeff Kossoff is a professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy. He's also author of a book about Section 230 called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Finally, reporters call him and they say, you know, there's something posted on an AOL bulletin board. And this is in 1995, the six days after the Oklahoma City bombing. And there are these really horrible, tasteless, vulgar advertisement for T-shirts making fun of the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, Call this number, and it's a Seattle phone number, and ask for Ken. And this is Ken Zarin's actual phone number. So um, he doesn't have AOL, and to this day, he doesn't know who posted this, but he calls AOL repeatedly 
And they say, you know, we can remove it. It takes them a while to remove the ad. The ad comes back. Uh, and this is going on for weeks. Zarin was not selling T-shirts poking fun at Oklahoma City. In reality, he ran a real estate magazine in Seattle and was basically one of the first examples of internet trolling. So his phone's ringing off the hook with angry people calling, sometimes making death threats. And finally, he just gets fed up. He hires a lawyer and sues AOL for unreasonable delay in removing defamatory messages, their refusal to post retractions, and their failure to catch subsequent reposts. Now, AOL, under the common law, under the Cubby and Prodigy cases, even if AOL is able to get this uh, distributor protection that CompuServe got, it's not going to do it much good because AOL really can't say it didn't know or have reason to know of the content because Ken Zern kept calling them, sending them letters, uh, so they knew about it. So AOL makes the novel argument that, hey, there is this new law, Section 230, and, and what it says is that there's no liability here. And the court could have read the law narrowly and say, no, it only says that all it does is get rid of the prodigy dilemma, and it says everyone is a distributor, and they're liable if they know or have reason to know. But the case goes up to the Fourth Circuit, and it's decided by uh, the presiding judge who writes the opinion is J. Harvey Wilkinson, who's a Reagan appointee uh, and also a former newspaper editor who uh, throughout his career has written a number of very strong First Amendment free speech opinions. And what he, he takes a very broad view of what the 26 words in Section 230, and he says – this encompasses both publisher and distributor liability uh, because Section 230 is intended to preserve an area for free speech on the Internet. Um, and so his opinion is the first federal appellate court opinion to interpret Section 230. And it, frankly, is adopted um, by courts nationwide. So his ruling ends up being effectively the law of the land. Kossif says the lasting significance of the Zarin case is that rather than simply enabling online platforms to police their feeds without fear of lawsuits, over time Section 230 actually decreased the incentive for them to do anything at all. Because why bother if you're immune from prosecution anyway? Or as Gigi Sohn puts it, all shield and no sword. In terms of legislation these days, one of the few things that both Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on is that Section 230 may have overstayed its welcome. With me here to talk about some of these reform ideas is Rebecca Kern. She's a tech policy reporter for Bloomberg Government. Hey, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Rebecca, as you know, historically tech companies, whether it's Facebook, Amazon, or Twitter, have largely tried to avoid doing more content moderation. Since the pandemic, though, that seems to be changing. Would you agree? I think there's a lot we maybe don't know that they are doing behind the scenes that they have always taken down that we're not seeing. So there is that, because that's not good for their business to have really vitriolic speech, you know, suicidal thoughts, talk of murder, or even terrorist content, which we did see occur. 
And so they don't, they don't always get it right. I think it's trial and error. They also keep growing. So I think that's changed. They have much larger user bases. And so therefore they have even more content to review, billions of posts a day. So that's why they've increasingly relied on computer algorithms to to pull this content off before the public even sees it or or as soon as it gets up there to prevent the dis- dissemination of it. I think they are just trying to become more responsive to what the public wants to see and doesn't want to see. It seems like the main difference between Republicans and Democrats is that Democrats think tech platforms aren't moderating enough speech and conservatives think they're taking too much down. So in terms of potential legislation, is there anything the parties could build on? Yeah, there are quite a few proposals, and they kind of keep popping up over and over. We've seen one reintroduce that the only bipartisan proposal is from Senators Brian Schatz from Hawaii, a Democrat, and Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota. So that's called the PACT Act. And and it, it essentially would mandate these companies report biannual transparency reports of the content that is removed. So everyone could see transparently, this is how we make these content moderation decisions, because I think a lot of con- conservatives and Democrats alike think these are all made in a black box. We don't understand your thought process here. And it, and it seems arbitrary is what a lot of the argument is. This idea of transparency reports is something that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg talked about when he testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee last March, even going as far to say that he thinks Section 230 immunity could be a precondition for implementing those transparency reforms. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey actually said something similar during a May 27th call with shareholders when he was asked a question about bias against conservative tweets and accounts. I think the most important thing that we can do always is be more transparent with how our rules work, how our enforcements have taken place. Um, People should know why we took an action or why we didn't take an action. Um, Sometimes there might be assumptions around a particular content that we took action on, but underneath there might be other things going on like manipulation of the network or uh, spam-like activities. So we're going to do a better job at making sure that these are transparent so that people see that there is no bias interaction, and we're going to make sure that we have a much more robust appeals process so that when we do get things wrong, people can appeal the decision and we can correct it. So they're going to say that because it is now bipartisanly agreed upon and they want to be on the right side of the lawmakers. They don't tell you what they want the reforms to be. They're just going to say, we'll sit down at the table with you, right? I would argue that these platforms have become too large to even be regulated because they've never seen any regulation really since 1996. So Rebecca, Is it your sense that this nod to transparency would be enough to convince other lawmakers to leave Section 230 alone? So I did recently speak with Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, and he is himself a former tech executive. So he knows a thing or two about tech policy, and he acknowledges that these Section 230 protections are really important for tech companies in order to prevent them from getting sued left and right over user-generated content. But at the same time, he did see a need to reform the law. 
we're now 20 plus years later, these small nascent social media platforms have turned into some of the most powerful companies in the world. And unfortunately, Section 230 has turned into, in a sense, a get out of jail free card for these companies to prevent anyone from bringing any type of lawsuit uh, on a whole host of areas, particularly when these these companies have foreseeable, obvious, and repeated misuses of their platforms. Rebecca Kern is a tech policy reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Sure. Thanks for having me. In terms of our national politics, many have pointed out that besides the creation of Fox News, social media has actually done more to elevate and promote conservative voices than almost any other medium. I mean, could you even imagine a Trump campaign without Twitter? Still, in recent years, the idea that Section 230 enables platforms to get away with censoring conservative voices has become a major talking point by Republicans, most notably the former president himself. They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter virtually any form of communication between private citizens or large public audiences. There's no precedent in American history for so small a number of corporations to control so large a sphere of human interaction. Trump had been threatening to penalize tech companies for years, and in May of 2020, he followed through after Twitter had the temerity to start slapping fact-check statements on some of his erroneous tweets. Trump signed an executive order encouraging the FCC to rethink the scope of Section 230 liability protections. The order also sought to channel complaints about political bias to the Federal Trade Commission to probe whether tech companies' content moderation policies are in keeping with the good-faith provision of Section 230. The order has since been retracted by the Biden administration, but many other Republicans, including some who have attended the best law schools in the country, such as Senators Hawley and Cruz, continue to claim that the law enables censorship of conservative voices including the idea that Section 230 is somehow based on political neutrality, which is what Cruz seemed to be implying during a 2018 hearing with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. It's just a a simple question. The predicate for for Section 230 immunity under the CDA is that you are a neutral public forum. Do you consider yourself a neutral public forum, or are you engaged in political speech, which is your right under the First Amendment? Well, Senator, our goal is certainly not to engage in political speech I'm not that familiar with the specific legal language of the, the law that you, that you speak to, so I, I would need to follow up with you on that. I'm just trying to lay out how broadly I think about this. Well, Mr. Zuckerberg, I will say there are a great many Americans who I think are deeply concerned that, that Facebook and other tech companies are engaged in a pervasive pattern of bias and political censorship. To be clear, contrary to what Senator Cruz seems to be implying, nowhere in the text of Section 230 does it mention political neutrality as being some kind of predicate for immunity protections. It's just not there. In reality, what critics like Cruz are really chafing against is the First Amendment. As some listeners may recall, in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United case that spending money to influence elections is a form of constitutionally protected free speech a distinction which effectively puts corporations in the same First Amendment bucket as private citizens. 
because everyone's running around saying, oh, I've been censored by Twitter. Well, Twitter can't censor you. The government is the only real source of censoring. Jessica Malugin is the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a libertarian think tank. And what she means by the government and censorship is that the First Amendment only restricts Congress from making laws abridging free speech in public. It doesn't say anything at all about how companies like Google or Twitter handle speech on their own private platforms, even though they are available to the public. But Twitter can say, uh, I don't want to carry your speech for whatever reason. And, and Section 230 creates kind of a procedural fast lane that keeps that question out of court constantly. But the fact remains, the reason why Twitter can say, we don't want to carry your speech isn't Section 230, it's the First Amendment. Just like I can go out in my front yard and yell whatever political speech I want, I am not allowed to jump the fence to my neighbor's house and throw a political rally in his living room that he is opposed to. So if you just said to Facebook, sorry, you're not allowed to take anything down. You have to be a dumb pipe and everything's up. It would be porn and violence book within a couple hours. You know, nobody really wants that internet. Um, they, they don't really want no content moderation. Um, it's just human nature that everyone wants the kind of content moderation that they would agree with. And there's nothing wrong with that, but let the marketplace sort out a few different options holds more promise than regulating Section 230 away, because what are the incentives now for these platforms? The incentives are, uh uh-oh, I don't have my liability shield anymore. I could get sued and we could waste a whole lot of time and money in court about anything that's questionable that a third party posts here. So why don't I just go ahead and take down a lot more stuff than I would have with my liability shield, because I don't want to be on the hook for it. In addition to increasing content moderation and harming competition, as Malugin says, others point out that removing Section 230 would harm many more services and platforms than just the Facebooks and Twitters of the world. We use things every day that never come up in the Section 230 uh, conversation. Elizabeth Banker is a former deputy general counsel for the Internet Association and now works as a consultant. Whether it's it's Wikipedia or, you know, the platform you use to talk about what's going on in your neighborhood or, you know, organize your child's participation in sports leagues. All of these things are enjoying Section 230 immunity and available to us because of it. Banker says that when people talk about how user-generated content could survive without Section 230, she says what they're often referring to is the really big companies. Because the absolute largest platforms will be able to withstand the changes to their cost structure that will result from a loss of Section 230. And in terms of cost structure, what I mean is these are free services. They're able to generate sufficient revenues off of the free content and free services to be able to bear the risk of litigation and the costs associated with that. Because litigation has cost regardless of whether there's liability. So it's uh, really expensive to defend yourselves. It's all of the small, upstart, medium-sized, 
different types of platforms that really are not in a position to bear that kind of cost associated with offering services for free and allowing the broad selection of users the ability to to kind of say what they want to say in a really instantaneous way. But others point out that these kinds of arguments about free markets and stifling innovation are what industries always say when the prospect of new regulation looms. And while having more choices may be beneficial when it comes to buying a new car or toaster, the old marketplace of ideas metaphor that good speech will ultimately win out over bad speech just doesn't accurately explain the way social media works today. I think we put a lot of pressure on that metaphor that, you know, sprung into existence about 100 years ago before the internet was a twinkle in anyone's eye. And I think there are a couple of stress points there. Nabia Syed is president of The Markup, an investigative journalism startup that explores how powerful actors use technology to reshape society. Nabia A few years back, you wrote a piece in the Yale Law Journal basically describing how the current First Amendment-based approach to internet speech has started to break down. Could you explain what you mean? Absolutely. So the marketplace theory, as it was conceived of 100 years ago, imagines that there's one powerful regulator who affects the marketplace, right? And that is the government who can also deprive you of physical liberty. So it's a pretty clear, big, like, let's keep them out of this. Let's check their power and limit their ability to kick anyone out of the marketplace of ideas because the power to deprive you of speech and deprive you of liberty combined into one power is tremendous, right? That's like a pretty clear binary. But the world that we're in has a lot of different governors of the marketplace of ideas. So that public-private distinction doesn't do what it used to and doesn't recognize that this is, frankly, a multipolar type of situation. In your Law Journal piece, you wrote that the fake news phenomenon illustrates how bad ideas or disinformation actually spreads faster and reaches a bigger audience because of the way platforms filter and amplify content, which I'm assuming is not what Oliver Wendell Holmes had in mind when he coined the marketplace of ideas metaphor. In a lot of ways, social media is like a funhouse mirror version of any communication system we've seen before, right? Pre-internet, the idea of algorithmic filters or communities that were entirely transcendent of geography or amplification done by people or by platforms that are trying to maximize attention because it's part of a profit model or even the speed at which this all happened, right? These were not things that we could imagine. So imagine a marketplace on steroids happening at a velocity no one can capture in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different languages, like, are we stressing the metaphor beyond its its sort of natural point? As others have pointed out, our courts don't take an absolutist position with respect to free speech on the internet. There's rules prohibiting things like pornography, child abuse, or incitement, etc. But I think it's also true that under Section 230, companies have the authority to draw the line between, say, political speech and incitement. Do you think there's a problem with that? You know, 
we should begin from the position that there is always some content that we decide is beyond the pale. And I think that's okay. I think that's just fine. And I think that's rooted in a First Amendment tradition, too, where we say, you know, there are categories that we say are not in keeping with our larger democratic values. And so we're going to create a carve out for incitement or for, um, you know, imminent violence. So let's accept that there's going to be some carve-outs. The productive debate then is, how broad are those carve-outs? How broad um, of a perspective do we take on this? And how do we zoom out and understand what creates the most productive conversation? So when I hear from certain corners, oh, well, we want a free marketplace of ideas. To that, I usually ask, who do you want to be in the marketplace? Because if your marketplace makes it such that women don't want to say anything lest they receive rape, you know, a barrage of rape threats in response to commenting on something sort of mundane, um, it's not clear to me the marketplace is accommodating their speech. And so if they opt out, is this the true marketplace? I would argue not. And so I do think we should take a speech maximizing position. I think that just requires... Um, some calibration and some moderation in a way oriented around safety, not a free-for-all. Despite the concerns many people have about the power these big tech companies have in our society, there's still quite a few people who say, you know, don't touch a hair on Section 230's head or you'll break the internet or ruin our economy. Do you have any sympathy for that point of view? I'm sympathetic to the view that we need to do anything we can and everything we can to incentivize companies to Uh, moderate content in ways that are actually responsive to the needs of a variety of populations. And so I don't see Section 230 as saying, oh, don't moderate at all, walk away. Because of course, the origin of Section 230 was to create space so that the platforms could moderate, right? So they weren't just open conduits of information. And I think not everyone, but many of us can agree that a no-holds-barred just totally open marketplace with no rules would create online communities that were untenable for the vast majority of people. So the question to me really is, how do, how do you incentivize companies doing better content moderation? And I think the question that we have to confront is, is it even possible to have coherent content moderation policies on systems of scale that are just this big? And I am skeptical about a positive answer to that question. I think when you have systems that are just this big, it's really hard to enforce any kind of policy with the type of consistency that we want, that the stakes deserve, given how we know these platforms can move, you know, political outcomes, people's livelihoods, people's lives. Nabia Syed is president of The Markup, an investigative journalism startup exploring the use of technology to reshape society. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. You too. What great questions. And that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Rebecca Kern and Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional editing and support from Jessica Coombs and Paul Albergo. If you like these kind of deep dives into issues of legal and public policy, I'd be grateful if you could recommend the podcast to a friend or give us a shout out on Facebook or Twitter if we haven't sufficiently scared you off those platforms yet. Again, thanks for listening.
My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.